Hello, church, if you would open to John chapter 19. Finally back into the Gospel of John. Uh, If you're new, when we say back into, we mean eight years of back into. uh, And we are persevering through this slowly. Um, Chapter 19, we will begin in verse 1 and we'll just read the first three verses this morning. This is God's Word. Then Pilate took Jesus and flogged Him. And the soldiers twisted together a crown of thorns and put it on His head and arrayed Him in a purple robe. And they came up to Him saying, Hail, King of the Jews! And they struck Him with their hands. So, Father, you sent your son down to have this happen to him. And our world does not understand that, but you've, because you've hidden these things from them and revealed them to babes, why would you allow this on your son? We pray that You would open that up to all of us today. That we would see the love of Christ and what He endured. And the love of the Father and sending His Son to suffer on our behalf. We pray that You would make these things known. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, we're back into the Gospel of John and... um, let me just start by acknowledging the name of this, uh, this gospel, right? We call it the gospel according to John. Why do we call it that? Ever wondered why we call this the gospel according to John when it's a history of Jesus' life? That's what it is. It's, it's just a history of the life of Christ, but we're calling it a gospel, the gospel according to To John, and and the reason we call it that is because the gospel is historical. Uh, What the Bible means by gospel uh, or good news is historical, related to the life, death, and resurrection of Christ. So all theology of Scripture comes from history. Uh, It's been said that the gospel narratives of Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John are all just passion narratives with long introductions. Passion meaning the story of Christ's suffering and death. And so the most important parts of the Gospel of John or any of the Gospels are not the parables, not the miracles, uh, not the geographic locations that Christ traveled. Uh, The most important parts of Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John are the history of Christ's suffering, death, and resurrection. All other doctrines regarding salvation and forgiveness are rooted in those historical realities. Apart from the history of these events, there is no gospel. There is no salvation. We don't just have these uh, doctrines called justification or forgiveness or salvation as these kind of 
spiritual theological truths. We have the historical reality that Jesus lived, suffered, died, and rose again. And all other gospel truths are rooted in that historical reality. All of them. And so as I meditated on this um, this passage, uh, the last few hours of Christ's life, uh, this week, I couldn't move past the suffering of Christ that we see here. Uh, there's certainly more uh, to come in chapter 19. We'll get to some of that next week. But the suffering of Christ really stopped me in my tracks for a few reasons. One, it's the first thing you see when you begin chapter 19 is the sufferings of Christ. Um, also, I'm a pastor and I'm with y'all. Uh, I'm with you in your lives, and I see suffering in the lives of many people in this church week after week. And so I can't read the Bible without remembering the context in which I'm living the Christian life, which is with other people suffering, uh, family struggles, physical pain, uh, sins from others, wrestling with our own sin. We could go on and on, all the, all the sufferings in this body, and then my, my own week. I wrote this sermon from my bed this week uh, on Thursday. Uh, my back has has been messed up again, and and so I'm I'm you know the reality is some of us are at uh, we're not waiting for suffering we're in it, and then uh, the rest of those who are not in suffering right now you're in line you're right behind us and yours is coming for all Christians uh, all Christians suffer, you either have, you are, or you will. Acts 14.22 says, through many tribulations, we must enter the kingdom. There is one path to glory, and it is the path of suffering. There is no other way to get there, not for Christ, not for Christ's followers. And so what's very clear in chapter 19 is that Jesus Christ is suffering. And this whole chapter is just going to give us one long description of that suffering, and we're not going to flippantly and quickly just move through that. Um, It is massively significant. And uh, it's not only a suffering for us in our salvation, as the early creed says, it is that, uh, but it's also a suffering that we are co-participants in. 1 Peter 4.13 says, Rejoice insofar as you share Christ's sufferings. So Christ's sufferings that we're reading about here, flogging, being hit, he really felt the punch to the face. He really felt the lashes upon his back. Deep pain, extreme pain. He felt that. Yet somehow, we're to rejoice that we share in Christ's sufferings. Philippians 3, again, says this. Paul says that I may know him. He wants to know Christ and the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of his sufferings. 
Everybody wants to, fel- everybody wants to, uh, to raise with Christ, to be resurrected with him. Who wants to experience the fellowship of his sufferings? And that word fellowship is the word koinonia. Remember that word from a few weeks ago, studying the Lord's Supper, that we commune with Christ at the table? Same word. We commune with Christ in suffering. We fellowship koinonia with Christ in suffering. According to Philippians 3, uh, Priscilla is reading a book right now uh, by Jeremiah Burroughs. Uh, some of you have heard of the book, uh, a rare, The Rare Jewel of Christian Contentment. Highly recommend it. Um, she told me that he made this comment, uh, that the secret of suffering is remembering Christ's suffering and in some mysterious way entering into it. I was talking on the phone to our brother here before his tests uh, this week. And he said that he is finding strength in Christ's sufferings, in Christ's sufferings, and that it's, he's wor- you've been counted worthy uh, to suffer with him. I wonder how many of us have this theology, have this understanding. Not just thinking about Christ's sufferings as a historical reality. It is that. But in what sense do we enter into it ourselves? Uh, This is very glorious. Um, There's two things that are connected. The sufferings of Christ and which make up the gospel and our secret to enduring sufferings on this earth in which we suffer with Christ. And those two things are connected. Listen to how John Gill says it. What he did and suffered was not for himself, but for us. He became incarnate for us. He obeyed and suffered and died for us. And so uh, Christ is doing this in the presence of the Father on our behalf Not only in chapter 19, we could go back to chapter 18. Let me remind us of the cruel treatment of this innocent Christ. Chapter 18 of John, he was betrayed, verse 2 and 5. They bound him, verse 12 and 24. They denied him, verse 17, uh, 25 and 27. They questioned him, verse 19. They struck him with a club, verse 22. They rebuked him, verse 22. They sent him away, verse 24, and if we read the other synoptic gospels, uh, we see all sorts of other descriptions of his suffering, like in the Garden of Gethsemane. He says the sorrow, he was greatly sorrowful to the point of death. And so the suffering that he's already been enduring uh, continues into chapter 19, verse 1, when we read this. Then Pilate took Jesus and flogged him. Flogged him. Christ. There's three levels of flogging the Roman government would administer. The, uh, The first was what we might call a minor beating. I don't know if you can, if there's something that we could consider a minor beating. Um, But it was for more minor crimes. 
Uh, the second was the second level of flogging was more serious. It could have put you in the hospital, certainly, uh, a more serious for more serious crimes. The third level was the most severe. It was only given to those who were already uh, uh, sentenced to execution, and so the the point of this flogging was just let's speed up the death process. Let's weaken them to the point where they die faster in the crucifixion. And so this third level was only given uh, to those already headed to death. There was a leather cord embedded with sharp pieces of metal. Victims were scourged until their bones and skeletal muscles were laid bare, organs exposed. And the instrument that was used was designed to inflict the most amount of suffering possible, rip the most amount of skin off of the back, and weaken the person Uh, to the point where they weren't dead, but beginning to bleed to death. And Jesus predicted he would be flogged before it happened in Mark 10, 34. He knew this was coming. And why I bring up those three levels of flogging is because we have a discrepancy in the text, or what some might call a discrepancy. In verse 1, John 19, verse 1, the flogging happens right there at the beginning, and then Jesus is sentenced to death. So flogging, then sentencing. If you read Matthew, Mark, and Luke, it says sentencing, then flogging. And so some critical scholars go, aha, a mistake in the text. And what we say is they fit together. They show us the whole picture. They're coming at it from different angles. And so what we see and what almost every scholar will tell you is that Jesus received two floggings. He received a minor flogging first because it seems Pilate wanted to try to appease the Jews, give them some minor beating, and hopefully they would relent from from their yelling that they wanted Christ to die. Uh, So Pilate does that. It does not appease them. He eventually uh, sends Christ to be crucified, where then Christ receives a severe flogging. Can you imagine, it's very hard for us, we think of flogging, we think of two people fighting, just immense amount of blood, and they just keep hitting each other with all of this blood. Um, That's not a good description because one of these people is not fighting back. Christ is taking all of these blows. He's already got the crown of thorns in his head, which would have pushed 12 inch thorns into his skull. And then he's receiving blows on top of that to press it further. He would have been completely covered in blood at this point. And yet still getting punched uh, by these men. And we need to remember this, this is more akin, less, less akin to a fight between two people who are bloodied up and more akin to someone beating an innocent child who's done nothing wrong. Because this is an innocent man. One author said, twisting together a crown of thorns, they ram the symbol of the curse of Adam down on the head of the second Adam. What do they mean, the curse of Adam? Thorns and thistles. They ram it down on his head. Fresh blood now running down Jesus' face. The soldiers begin to beat him over the head with a mocking scepter, driving the thorns deeper into his forehead. 
And so all of these things are happening before they even give him the cross to put on his shoulders and begin to carry up the hill of Golgotha. If we pressed into verse 3, it says, They came up to him saying, Hail, King of the Jews! And they struck him with their hands. And then if we move into verse 4, we begin to see this mockery continue, and we won't go there now, but this gets into uh, other levels of suffering. Emotional, uh, psychological, relational, spiritual suffering. Um, Actually, some have talked about 14 types of suffering. I think Christ, in chapter 19 alone, is experiencing all of those. And which is why the church historically hasn't hesitated to say that Jesus' suffering in these last hours is the pinnacle of human suffering. Every form of it. Which is why I titled the sermon today, Christ, the Archetype of Suffering. Christ, the Archetype, or we could say Archetypical Sufferer. Jesus is the Archetypical Human Sufferer. Nobody suffered more than Him. Or in all the painful, multifaceted ways in which he did. He was the ultimate human sufferer. He, in his body, reached the limits of human suffering. Psychologically, emotionally, physically, relationally, spiritually. And I use the word archetype, and I need to define that because it's not a common word we use. A very typical example of a certain person or thing, an original that is to be imitated. So, is this a biblical word? I'm going to give you two arguments that it is. Uh, The first would be Abraham is an archetype of faith. Everybody who's ever had faith in Christ after Abraham was following the pattern that Abraham set. How do we know that? Galatians 3.9 says that after God preached the gospel to Abraham, it says those who are of faith are blessed along with Abraham, the man of faith. The archetype of faith. The original form of the one who has faith in Christ. If you want a science term, you could call it a prototype. He's the first form. The idyllic model. And everybody who follows him copies, imitates, and emulates him. Another biblical example would be Adam. Romans 5.14 says Adam, who was a what? A type of the one who was to come. A type. Paul is explicitly calling Adam an archetype of humanity. The first image bearer of God, the first form, everybody else who was to be human, was imitating, in some sense, Adam as the representative of humanity. He was a prototype. The firstborn of a human, of a new race, Paul said. The second Adam it calls him. And so I don't want to title this Christ's example in suffering, but Christ suffering as an archetypical example. That's, I, I believe, more biblical and, and true to the text. And you go, is archetype even a, is that a theological word? I haven't heard that word. It's not a theological word, actually. I haven't read it in any kind of theology book. Um, it's a psychological term and it's a philosophical term from Carl Jung is the one who popularized it. For those of you who have psychology backgrounds, um, you might remember 
uh, how, how much he used it. He got it from a Platonic form. Uh, Plato used this concept of the pure form. And then Jordan Peterson has more recently popularized this word. But it, uh, track with me for a second on this. Um, I want to be clear. I'm not saying that Jesus is an archetype like Carl Jung said Jesus is an archetype. Because Carl Jung uh, was looking at Jesus from a purely sociological phenomenon. How did a Jewish man change the world? How did, he, how, how did this one Jewish man, what did he do, say, experience that influenced so many cultures, societies, and governments? What did people see in him, especially in his suffering, to help them in suffering? Because we look at the suffering people of the world when you study that sociologically and you look at all the people who suffered horribly and so many of them found solace in Christ's suffering, help and hope in Christ's suffering. You look at even the slaves in early America, they were writing hymns about Christ as they endured suffering. And so uh, Carl Jung is seeking to understand purely from a sociological or psychological perspective who is this archetypal sufferer? Who is this prototype? Who is the first and ultimate sufferer? It's Christ. And in his classic book, Psychology and Religion, he said, what happens in the life of Christ happens always and everywhere. In the Christian archetype, all lives, all lives of this kind are prefigured. So here's what Carl Jung is doing. He's reading the Bible about the sufferings of Christ, not as a Christian, just reading the Bible, seeing the sufferings of Christ, and then he's looking and reading human history of sufferers and saying, how are all these people who are suffering throughout history enduring the misery of this life, full with all of the suffering that comes with this life? How are they enduring that? Many of them are going back to Christ as the prototypical, as the archetypal sufferer. And so Carl Jung was amazed by this and unfortunately he only saw Christ as an archetype not a savior Um, but this is how he understood Christ now as Christians we think about these things very different we think about Christ's suffering from a very different perspective Uh, we don't see Jesus as a mythological kind of demigod we see him as the son of God fully God fully man in the person of Christ And so what that means for us is that there's some ways in which we can imitate Christ's suffering and there's some ways we cannot. The the theological way that that people uh, talk about this is communicable and incommunicable attributes. There are some ways that we can imitate Christ and there are some ways we cannot imitate Christ. Take, for example, what Jesus, an illustration he used, uh, the cup. Remember, we did a whole sermon on this a few weeks back. Jesus asks his disciples, are you willing to drink the cup that I am to drink? And they said, we're able. And he said to them, you will drink my cup. So there's some cup of suffering that all Christ's disciples will drink. But when Christ is in the Garden of Gethsemane praying and talking about this cup, he knows this, there is a cup that no one else can drink but him. There is a cup of suffering that only Christ can drink. 
that the Father will give him. It is filled to the brim with our sins. He must put that cup to his mouth and no one else can drink it. And so he says, if there is any way this cup can pass from me, not my will, but yours, Father. And somehow the the will of the Father and the will of the Son uh, merge and Christ submits to the will of the Father and willingly drinks the cup on behalf of his people to take a suffering from us that we could never nor would ever want to dare think about how horrifying this suffering would be eternally. And Christ took it from His people. John Piper said something helpful. He said, the death of Christ is the supreme suffering, the clearest display of the glory of the grace of God And if that's true, suffering is an essential part of the created universe in which the greatness of the glory of grace can be most fully revealed. Suffering is an essential part of the tapestry of the universe, or to put it more simply, the ultimate reason that suffering exists in the universe is so that Christ might display the greatness of the glory of his grace by suffering himself to overcome our suffering. And he goes on, the suffering of the utterly innocent and infinitely holy Son of God in the place of utterly undeserving sinners to bring us to everlasting joy is the greatest display of the glory of God's grace there ever was or could be. And he goes on, lastly, this was the moment Good Friday for which everything in the universe was planned, everything leading to it, and everything flowing from it is explained by it, including, listen, all the suffering in the world. All the suffering in the world? We know there is a lot of of mystery in suffering. I submit to you that Christ's sufferings on the cross answers all the ultimate questions about suffering. And that's why we're not rushing through chapter 19. And that's why we haven't rushed through the Gospel of John, which gives us an incredible theology of suffering. One old preacher said, there is a sense in which Christ's whole life was suffering. You know, some people try to, wrongly, they try to diminish Christ's physical suffering, emotional, psychological suffering, in order to uh, elevate or magnify His suffering on the cross. You don't need to do that. You don't need to minimize all of the physical suffering, spiritual, emotional suffering He endured throughout His whole life in order to magnify the suffering on the cross. He didn't start suffering on the cross. He was the man of sorrows before that night. He was the despised and rejected one from birth. They were already plotting to kill him, remember? But as the hours get near to his death, the plot thickens and he stops trying to escape arrest. And so remember in chapter 18... He's praying in the Garden of Gethsemane. He has already told Judas, go to do what you must do. And he's sitting there in the garden praying, knowing what's about to come. 
and about 800 to 1,000 tactical Roman soldiers come into that dark garden with, uh, with uh, torches, fully armed, all for one man. And John 18.4 says, Knowing all that was about to happen to him, he came forward and said, Whom do you seek? And then he steps forward, essentially saying, Whom do you seek? Who's on your arrest warrant? And they said, Jesus of Nazareth. And he said the same phrase we see in Exodus when God speaks to Moses, telling him who he is. I am he. Or literally, I am, I am. Ego a me. And when he said his name, they drew back and fell to the ground. A preview of that Reality that every knee will bow and every tongue will confess. Guys, nobody took his life from him. He gave it. He said that. He was clear about that. John 10, I laid down my life that I may take it up again. Nobody takes it from me. I lay it down of my own accord. I have authority to lay it down and I have authority to take it up again. He knew this, he prophesied this, he told his disciples, I will be arrested, I will be beaten, I will be flogged, I will be crucified. As the prophets have said. Jonathan Edwards uh, said, the hostility from the fallen man toward God is so great and so intense that if God would make his life vulnerable to the hands of man, he wouldn't survive for 15 seconds. Why did Edwards think that God, if he would come down to earth, wouldn't last long before being killed? Because he didn't last long. He lasted 33 years. That's five years younger than me. That's not a very long life. And he wouldn't have lasted but a few minutes had God not providentially restrained those who were trying to kill him at his birth. Why the hatred? Well, he tells us in John 3, 19, Jesus says, this is the judgment. Referring to himself. The light has come into the world and people love darkness rather than light because their works were evil. For everyone who does wicked things hates the light. And so they felt judged. Why? His light his purity, his righteousness. And Pilate notices it. In verse 4, he says, I find no guilt in him. And the crowd can't find any guilt, but they're still yelling about this one who claims to be the Son of God, crucify him. That's how we want you to treat the sinless, innocent man. To quote Carl Jung again, he says, Jesus voluntarily exposed himself to the assaults of the imperialistic madness that filled everyone. Which is another way of saying what John 1.10 says, He was in the world and the world was made through him, yet the world did not know him. He came to his own and his own people did not receive him. 
You hear it in Young's, what he, how he describes this, Jesus voluntarily exposed himself to the assaults of the imperialistic madness that filled everyone. No sane person does that. Willingly subjects themselves to the assaults of imperialistic madness that fills everyone. No one but Christ. And Christ's martyrs. You say, haven't there been others? Like, didn't Paul said to live as Christ and to die is gain? By our nature, we, let's be honest about ourselves and not think we are more than we are. We are all cowardly pain avoiders. That's what we are. And so any Christian that willingly follows Christ into suffering, that's not them. That's Christ in them. Here's a perfect example. Hebrews 11.35. Some were tortured. This is talking about Christians. Some were tortured, refusing to accept release. So they could have denied Christ and avoided the pain, but they refused to accept release. Some were tortured, refusing to accept release so that they might rise again to a better life. Others suffered mocking and flogging, even chains and imprisonment. They were stoned, they were sawn in two, they were killed with the sword. They went about in skins of sheep and goats, destitute and afflicted and mistreated, of whom the world was not worthy. Wandering about in the deserts and mountains and in dens and caves of the earth. You know who those people are? They're cowardly lovers of self. Except for the grace of God and the Spirit of God in them, enabling them to suffer with Christ. They're you. They're me. Doing everything we can to avoid what Jung calls the voluntary assault of imperialistic madness that fills everyone. So here's what I'm saying. Christ isn't just our archetypical example. He is also the one that empowers and enables us to suffer. Like Him and with Him. And lest anyone misunderstand me, I'm not just talking about extreme forms of suffering. like persecution or torture on the mission field. Milder suffering, like being wrongly treated or accused by your spouse or your boss, and then you don't respond evil for evil, but good for evil. Kindness, patience. One of the first things I ever heard uh, John Piper say uh, about 17 years ago, and it stuck with me because it threw me off, uh, messed up my categories as a new Christian especially. He was talking about suffering, and he said, if you stub your toe in the path of obedience, you're suffering with Christ. If you stub your toe in the path of obedience, 
your suffering with Christ. And that caught me off guard because I had a category of suffering with Christ. I mean, that's the martyrs. That's the people who die for him. Not people who are just living normal life in obedience and endure some sort of suffering along the way. I think Piper's right. So some marriage struggles in here, parenting struggles in here, doctor's diagnosis, the pain of childbirth, whatever pain in the path of obedience to Christ, if you embrace that pain and say, I will endure this pain for your sake, Christ, He is so magnified in your suffering. And that is oh so difficult and impossible to do apart from His enabling. We are comfort-loving, ease-of-life addicts. And if there is any willingness in us to suffer like Christ, for Christ, God is doing that in you. God. Not you. Don't take credit for the work of Christ in you to endure any suffering for His sake and the path of obedience. And so if perfect humanity was treated like we just read, why do we as imperfect humans expect a life of ease and comfort? If they take fake bows and spit it on their maker who is worthy of praise, why do you expect honor and recognition? If they didn't acknowledge His love and service, why are you surprised when no one praises you for your good works? And if no friends or family comforted Him in His affliction, why do you expect for everybody to circle around you when you're going through pain? What is wrong with us? But the very Son of God is treated as He is. And we, do, we think we're entitled to better treatment than the Son of God in our suffering? Let me end with one more thing about Christ. I'm trying to give us something of a feel of Christ's sufferings um, more broadly, but let me move us into this idea. I think the overwhelming thing about Christ's suffering in, in chapter 19, the whole thing, read all of it, look at all the suffering, the main thing that jumps out at me is how alone he is. He's utterly alone. I don't know how many of you have read books on suffering. I've read a lot of books on suffering over the years. All, all the authors I've read are united on one thing, that the greatest comfort when you're suffering is that God is with you. His presence with you in your suffering is the greatest comfort for the believer. You know who didn't have that comfort in their worst moment of suffering? Christ. He didn't have his father with him in that worst moment. How do we know that? What did he say on the cross? My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? That might be the worst suffering you can endure as a human. Loneliness at that level. 
In his worst moment, the father left him alone. And he experienced that suffering alone so that we could experience suffering not alone, but having Christ with us in our suffering and his church. Because you go, how does Christ, how is he with me in my suffering? Many times it's his people. His body, we call it. He calls it. His body is the one practically hands and feet meeting our needs, bearing our burdens. I hear it every week from people suffering in this church. The church did such and such for me. And and what comes in my mind is Christ did that for you. It's his hands. It's his feet. It's his body serving you. He's with you through his church. You get that because he forsook that on the cross and died alone. And so as we see him suffering alone, especially on the cross, we need to remember that he did that so that we would not be alone. We would have him, we would have his people, and that we would have these things eternally. Not for a temporary moment in our life, uh, but forever. The great hope uh, that we have as his people. Amen? Amen. Let's pray, church. Father, Lord, we, we don't deserve a drop of cold water when we're thirsty. An ounce of mercy when we've rebelled against You. But You sent Your Son to suffer on our behalf and to die on our behalf. Not so that we can just think about all of those things, but so that we can participate not only in the death and suffering of Your Son, but in His resurrection. And so Lord, we praise You that Your suffering was not in vain. You purchased a people. You were preparing a kingdom where there is no tears and no crying and no pain anymore for those former things will have all passed away and everything will be new. And we long for the day, Lord. Make our hearts ready. Give us the strength by Your Spirit to endure whatever minor or large sufferings that You've planned for us in this life. We just entrust ourselves to You again. You are wise. You are good. And we pray these things in the name of your Son. Amen.